Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to the Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the destruction of Aboriginal country in Australia. How is it possible that a 46,000-year-old heritage site has been destroyed by a mining company? It's an all-too-familiar story, the destruction on the 24th of May of sacred Aboriginal sites by industrial giants. We talk to an archaeologist at the University of Western Australia about the most recent events and the wider context. Can anything be done to better protect Aboriginal country and Australia's ancient heritage? Also this week, as a Russian referendum approves Vladimir Putin's new constitution, a foregone conclusion of course, we look at the state's alarming crackdown on artists. And in the latest in our series, Lonely Works, in which we explore art behind the doors of museums closed due to COVID-19, we look at a work that will soon be lonely no more. The artist George Shaw tells us about Thomas Jones's A Wall in Naples, which will be seen for the first time in more than three months at the National Gallery in London from next week. Before all that, just a reminder that the art newspaper recently launched a new series of online articles, themed monthly collections from our 30-year archive. You can view the archive collections on theartnewspaper.com, our iOS app, which you can get from the App Store, and in the newspaper, of course. Our July-August print edition is out next week. Do subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Now, on the 24th of May, two partially researched rock shelters at a 46,000-year-old Aboriginal heritage site at the Dukan Gorge in the remote Pilbara region of Western Australia were blown up by the mining giant Rio Tinto. It's the latest in a series of events in which industry has destroyed sites that are sacred to Aboriginal people. Sven Usman is an archaeologist and activist at the University of Western Australia and a member of the university's Centre for Rock Art Research and Management. I spoke to him about these recent events and the wider context. What can be done to prevent the future destruction of Aboriginal people's land? Sven, let's begin by talking about this most recent incident involving Rio Tinto. Can you tell us what's happened All right, so Western Australia is enormous. It's a third of Australia and it contains who knows how many archaeological sites dating back from 50,000 or more years ago up until essentially yesterday. Up in the Pilbara, an iron ore rich area, which has been a focus of human activity for a long, long time, um, there's a lot of archaeology and one of the sites there uh, is the one that was blown up. Um, So this is a site that's parts of which were dated 46,000 years ago. What people forget is the traditional owners also value the very recent socially rich past as well. So it's a continuum. It's not just a game of the oldest. And indeed, all heritage at a certain level should be treated the same. But this was obviously particularly high profile, particularly damaging, and has made international news for all the wrong reasons. I think that the immediate question that will be in the mind of listeners and certainly in my mind is, how can this happen? <laughs> Very easily. So what you're dealing with is uh, what, one of the pathologies of colonialism, I suppose. People forget that there's Aboriginal law has been in place for thousands of years. And without romanticizing it, we, we have the sites from a long time ago. Most of the destruction has occurred during the colonial period. And added to that is we have a very confusing set of heritage legislations in Western Australia. We have three 
main heritage laws. Um, the Heritage Act, which is largely restricted to colonial period heritage, which can include Aboriginal things, but generally not. The Aboriginal Heritage Act, which is relevant here, and then the Historic Shipwrecks Act. The, the point simply being here is that these acts come into contradiction with each other, and they also value different kinds of heritage differently. It's not intentional. It's not as though it's a targeted racism, for example, but it's what um, sociologists would call structural violence or even structural racism. So, for example, if you damage a heritage site under the One Act, you will attract a fine, although actually there have been very few fines um, delivered, that is different to an equivalent act uh, of vandalism under another act. So, what people haven't really been talking about is the need to have a single Heritage Act in the state that then accords with uh, national and indeed international law. Um, Western Australia, though it's huge, is quite small people-wise, just over 2 million people. And so we can't afford to have different heritage compliance agencies wasting time and money. In this particular case, what happened is, as has been reported, nothing illegal has happened in terms of the letter of the law. But people forget that legislation is generally quite a blunt instrument. It goes along with regulations, case law, social license, and public opinion. And that's very much the spirit of the law. And so the particular... Um, permit, the Section 18 permit under the Aboriginal Heritage Act that was given out four or five years ago, is in force and allowed this to happen, despite the fact that archaeologists found um, exciting new finds. Of course, these take quite a while to publish, so they're not well known. And um, you end up with this ridiculous situation in which a company acts entirely lawfully, um, but to international outrage. Uh, so, a tragedy. So, one thing that's that's not clear to me is how much political will in Western Australia or in the in terms of the national government is there to reform this situation or in some way address the fact that this is being allowed to happen. I suppose the key thing is to what extent is the government helping development and industry in in uh, direct conflict with protecting Aboriginal peoples and lands. Indeed. So I'd like to back up a little bit and avoid a kind of us versus them scenario. As an archaeologist, we're not necessarily against development. It pays for the, the new WA museum, is paid for um, a lot of mining royalties and those kinds of things. And ideally, you'd want to work together, make informed decisions. Some sites get impacted, some don't. But we have an imbalance. Um, uh, the Section 18 permits, not one has ever been refused. So that tells its own story. And the Act itself, the Aboriginal Heritage Act, if you follow that Act, you follow the different political currents through the country. Currently, um, from all parties, there is will to change this Act and was even before this destruction because the Act, which came about in 1972 as a very positive Act, there was actually no real strong protection of Aboriginal heritage at the time, and it had widespread support, has unfortunately become watered down. It hasn't been revised or amended nearly often enough. It's had two amendments, and these have served to weaken the Act, and some people argue it's really become a box-ticking exercise. And there are many people involved. There's mining, there's development, there's the public, there are Aboriginal organizations and individuals, archaeologists, government, and so forth. And... Um, it happens at the worst time because there has, there is a program on the go to replace this act with a new act called the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. And um, 
were it not for COVID, this probably would have been in advanced stages yet, but it'll happen in the next year or two. And the idea is that there are a lot of improvements, such as acknowledging that there are cultural landscapes, not just sites that are dots on a map, but there are wider areas of significance which fit with people's ethnographic perceptions of landscapes and understandings. There's a lot of good things to be said about the, the new act. Uh, um, there are issues around how it will be resourced and that, but um, these are all live issues. Uh, it's, In other words, it's just really difficult timing. It could never be a good timing, but this was, if you could choose the worst possible timing for this to happen, this would be about now with a global pandemic, with an act in the works, um, and with you know growing um, a dissatisfaction from Aboriginal people about how their affairs have been handled for years and years and years now. Indeed. Uh, one of the things that you sent me a paper about the Esperance region and a particular case study which looked at a particular um, area of Aboriginal country. And what really struck me in that paper was that there's this idea of a place-based analysis and a site-based analysis. And can you explain that a bit? Because it's really crucial to understanding the Aboriginal relationship with country and with land, right? Because it's it's not just about rock art. It's about um, a huge area of land. Yes, yeah, so sites and cultural landscapes are, are should really be one and the same thing. You can see why legislators, etc., and even archaeologists, when someone says, well, where does this site, what is a site? And you'll say, in, normally a site is the presence or abs- presence of some sort of artifact, a stone tool, a giant rock shelter, whatever. Um, and then people will say, well, where does this site end? And you'll say, well, it ends maybe over there where the artifacts stop, or maybe we put a buffer zone in. But there is a discrete end. And when you have a permit, they'll say, okay, what are the coordinates? What are the polygons of hard lines on a map that define that site? But if, Which is all good and well for administrative purposes, but really doesn't, as you say, get that spirit of how people relate to and understand, indeed construct that landscape. So turning it around, even within Western scholarship, People will point out that there is no such thing as a natural landscape, even calling it a natural landscape imbues it with a cultural element and so forth. And you look at a map and you might have these dots representing sites, but you then say, well, how did people get from that site to that site? Did they fly magically through the air? That, of course, not there. We know that there are sometimes very ceremonial ways of approaching sites, and it's not just a straight line. Then there come things where people will say, you'll, you'll be walking in the field, uh, with Aboriginal custodians, and they'll point out a rock, what to us is a a natural rock, that has an amazing story attached to it. And sometimes they're not that interested in the stone tools, but they're much more interested in that rock or that hill and the story it has. And so when you're even building a road, for example, they're not necessarily against the building the road, but they'll say, well, please take it that way so it doesn't disturb whatever that entity is over there. And it's not really just an Aboriginal versus Western way of things all people respond to the world around them in these kinds of ways. And, the, you know, what sociologists might call the habitus, your, your that daily fund of places you go to and feelings you get at certain kinds of places, and then the distress you feel when a change is made that you are powerless to prevent. There's a, there's a psychological condition called solastalgia, which was pioneered in New South Wales for open strip coal mining, where the European-descended residents we're enormously distressed. So it's something that affects us all. As I was saying earlier, the new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage um, Act acknowledges cultural landscapes, as do many heritage acts throughout the world. They're a challenge to manage, um, 
but they really are the way to go. So if you were to visualize it, instead of dots on a map, you'd almost have a color-coded heat map where you'd have sort of reds and greens showing. You never have no sights or meaning. There's always some residual level that then ramps up or down um, depending on the knowledge that you have, either through archaeology or when you're lucky enough to have oral testimony and knowledge, um, that kind of knowledge. Um, but it's definitely the, the, the way to go. Uh, and different communities respond differently to objects and sites versus cultural landscapes that oscillates and you need to have the, the nimbleness to accommodate those two in a legislative framework. One of the things that strikes me is that this is an issue directly in relationship to an even broader issue and, that, and that's climate change because so much it seems to me of this is about fossil fuel companies for instance, it's about mining and then it's also about ecology, about protecting ecosystems. To what extent is, is the climate change argument at, at the heart of this debate, if you like? Well, it's certainly there in the ways you, you mean. So there's a front end and a back end, I suppose. You know, what, what is all of this being used for? It's being exported with huge carbon footprints to all sorts of different parts of the world. Yes, there are economic and social benefits, you know, very often. Aboriginal communities have long-term agreements with development companies, for example. Um, but there's also a back end. So, for example, in the northern uh, Pilbara up on the Barra Peninsula, which has all of these many millions of engravings, is the industries there um, have altered the microclimate, such as the rain that comes down either etches the, the rock art away or creates the conditions that things like lichens that can destroy it um, are present. And as an archaeologist, you've got to think with different scales of time. So the average life of a mine will be measured usually in decades, perhaps 100 years. Um, and you look at its leverage effects, the, every dollar spent on mining, some figures I have from a few years ago, uh, stimulate another 20 to $30 in the wider economy. Interestingly, when you look at heritage, now heritage vastly different scale, but has a greater leverage effect. Every dollar you spend on heritage is generally 25 to $40. And the time scale is larger. It will last for quite a long time. And increasingly, people in Northern Australia are looking at these hybrid economies and saying, what happens when the mine goes, for example? What, what then are we going to do? And if the site is destroyed, um, well, you can't use that anymore. So how then do you work around those? And as I said before, the fact that none of the Section 18 permits have ever been refused is quite worrying. Again, not against mining or anything like that, but we certainly want to balance what are the demands of the past, what are the needs of the present, and where's the happy medium um, in between those. You know, we even have to think ourselves as archaeologists when we do field work for the good, we think, but we fly up, we use cars, we use products that have been generated through using fossil fuels and those kinds of things. So it's at the heart of more or less everything we do. Okay, so can you just give us a sense of, you know, you've talked about how, in theory, this new legislation could be a positive move, it could it could actually develop much more I guess accountability and and also much more just fundamentally much more protection. Are you optimistic that that is the case? Are you do do you feel like we're that, that in a sense this new legislation might be a, a, the moment where this a, a corner is turned? I guess I'm, I'm probably not quite that optimistic, but not that pessimistic either. So a few years ago, um, 
amendments to the existing Act were proposed. These amendments were opposed from a lot of quarters because they, again, seem to be continuing this process of watering down the Act. Um, the cynical side of one would say, well, things have to get better because they couldn't get a whole lot worse. That said, you know, the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage, which is the regulator for this Act in Western Australia, has looked nationally and internationally to see what is the best practice. And they've put these together in a package that is being discussed. Things like cultural handscapes, things like having greater Aboriginal representation. Under the current Act, Aboriginal interests, people, organisations cannot appeal a decision made by the minister, but a proponent like a developer can that's nuts. You can't have that. Um, and similarly, the decision-making process up until now has not necessarily involved a lot or sometimes any Aboriginal people. There is a move in the new Act to constitute what are called local um, Aboriginal heritage centres um, that would then help inform proponents about what is the right thing to do, how to do it, who to consult and so forth. But there are concerns about the resourcing of it, particularly now in a recession. Heritage, you tend to find people say good things and positive things about it. But when it comes to the actual resourcing, um, it's one of the first spheres to get cut. So we Aboriginal corporations under enormous pressure for all sorts of other things as is, and very few as we stand now would have the capacity to do this kind of regulation. It's definitely what needs to be aimed for, but there are concerns about the resourcing of, of those centres. Um, and I think we have to get on board and support these changes to the Act, uh, at least for now, because it's certainly a great improvement on the old one. Uh, the good thing about the Jukun disaster is people are now saying, well, we can't just have permits that last forever and there should be regular reviews. And if significant findings are made, that alters the basis on which an original decision was made, for example. So it's it's a very tricky sphere. And we don't, you know, we want to use heritage for reconciliation. People talk about it in a positive way, but it's very often used in a divisive way. It's probably one of our great dividing forces. Areas I work with up in, in the Kimberley in Australia, for example, people will talk about, talking to me, will talk about, they'll say, your government did this, that, and the other. Not the government, not our government. So, you know, those that's the level that we have to deal with. Some people would argue we're still in a colonial type state. So there's a long road along reconciliation and nation building to go to recognize the so-called tangible and intangible of everyone as important. Um, and, you know, to have to, the, the other important thing is when you look at punitive measures, don't always want to think about these things, but that kind of is also part of law. And there've only really been a, about half a dozen prosecutions under the Aboriginal Heritage Act in almost 50 years. Um, so that tells its own story. We've probably lost a lot of other sites that we don't even know about um, because people might have made economic decisions to say, well, if we get caught, a fine is negligible compared to X number of days of operation, or just um, people don't always know how to recognize sites. So we as archaeologists and social scientists have to have a lot of work to do to sensitizing the broad Australian public uh, about 
basically archaeology. Um, I, I find that most Euro-Australians have very little knowledge about things like rock art and so on. When you tell them about it, they say, great, this is the product of a schooling system and, and it's in the current school syllabus and the kids are great about it now. But anyone over about 35, 40 is, is generally not well educated at all. But that said, when they are given the facts, are very supportive. So, you know, there's definitely scope to work with. We just hope that it's not rushed through and that the consultations, particularly with traditional owners um, that are now on hold, uh, continue with a decent time frame for people to think and comment. I'm, I'm really struck talking to you about how this taps into so many of the debates around museums and heritage generally around decolonization. You mentioned about residual colonial practices, and it strikes me that this absolutely taps into those debates about decolonization. Very much so. So um, I have a career in museums as well, um, mostly in South Africa, which is a, a different stage, but another interesting her heritage stage in which, for example, heritage was reimagined in, in a much more social way where you have rock art and the coat of arms and those sorts of things. And there have been moments in Australia, such as the Sydney Olympics and such like, where indigenous symbols and such like are used. But this was really brought home to me three years ago when I was at a, a art gallery opening, actually on campus, and it was an Aboriginal curator. And afterwards, um, we're just chatting and making conversation. And I said, well, you know, something to the effect of what's it like working in a kind of post-colonial context? And he sort of looked back and he looked at me, gave me this funny look, and he said, mate, we're still in a colonial phase. And I, I thought he was sort of making a joke, but very quickly I realized you know, when you look at the standard hallmarks of colonialism and people forget the very shallow time depth of European occupation of Australia, he's right. We still are not in the same sort of colonialism, obviously, as the 19th and 17th century, but we certainly haven't moved into a post-colonial phase. You know, again, there are moments of hope. Um, there's one of those one-in-a-lifetime events with the new Western Australian Museum will open, I think, in November. And it, the curators have worked very hard and very collaboratively to have something that isn't tokenistic, that is more widespread. But, you know, just the, the, you know, people talk about statues and things like that. You know, it's a spectacularly bad idea to put up a statue to any individual. It, that just encapsulates that sort of egocentric kind of notion. And if you are going to do something with them, let them, you know, sort of don't take them away. Let them sort of rot there and put something that the regime you're opposing would find very offensive next to that regime. You know, those sort of tactics that you, you kind of use, because I think we need a little bit of humor in it as well. But take Australia Day, for example. Australia Day, what do you see? You see marches, you see all sorts of division. Um, I have a daughter who's 14 who says, you know, Dad, what is the problem here? Is Why can't we just make it the 26th of January, the day before, is her logic, which I think is a really good way of you know, recognizing that. The, the statement from the heart from Uluru has received very little attention. So constitutionally, in all sorts of ways, there's, there, there, there's positive talk on the sides, but when it comes to things that matter, legislation, funding of that legislation, national days, having some hard conversations publicly about race, which are starting to be held now, there really is still a very long way to go. Me, I like to see the positive though, and I see rock art as one of our most effective tools in this. Um, rock art covers thousands of years. There's even rock art of Macassan ships, European motor cars, all of those kinds of things. So it's a comment on society 
past, the recent past and, and long gone past, but it's visually accessible, it has strong stories, and it's very strongly tied to landscapes. I think this is an important way. I, I use it in schools and things too, and, and for older learners to, to great effect. Um, so I think that, that we've got all the tools to do it, but it's, it's a very difficult time. Um, the, the current government has just cut funding to universities and to the uh, the arts in general. Um, so you're starting to have a realization that people in a lot of so-called third world countries have is that the state cannot provide for all of your needs and you need plans B and C and so forth. And so we're starting to see that kind of fragmentation now. Um, whether heritage can stitch all of those together would, would probably seem optimistic. I think there are a few messy years ahead of us before we reach that sort of happy place we all hope to reach. Although the, the Marxist would say, if you've reached a, a happy place, that's when you really need to worry because it, it doesn't exist. But I'm not that cynical. Well, Sven, thank you very much for talking to us today. No pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if anyone wants to ask any more questions or that, just look me up and um, happy, happy to make something up that sounds interesting. <laughs> you can read more about this story at theartnewspaper.com and on the app. And to read more about the activities of the Centre for Rock Art Research and Management, visit its website, crarm.uwa.edu.au. We'll speak to Sofia Kishkovsky in Moscow in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories on our website this week. Many museums in the UK finally announced their reopening dates this week. The National Gallery will open on the 8th of July, more on that later. The Tate Galleries in London, Liverpool and St Ives all reopen on the 27th of July. But things will be very different. The National's opening hours are shorter, there are three one-way routes through the building, and even though it remains free, visits must be booked in advance. At the time of recording, the British Museum and Victoria and Albert Museum have yet to confirm their dates. To see the full list of reopenings in the UK, Europe and the US, go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and search for this episode, where you'll find a link to the article. A Francis Bacon triptych was the highlight of Sotheby's marquee evening auctions, held entirely online and live-streamed from Hong Kong, London and New York on the 29th of June. Bacon's work sold for $74 million, or $84.55 million with fees. That was within the pre-sale estimate of $60 to $80 million. The sales in total reached $363.2 million with fees, close to the upper end of the estimate of $368.4 million. Georgina Adam, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper, said that the sale sent an encouraging signal for the market on several levels, among others that it proved online-only sales can do well and that the COVID-19 pandemic has not killed the demand for art. All eyes now turn to Christie's, whose one auction takes place on the 10th of July. And finally, Magnum Photos has announced the addition of five new members to its roster, including three Americans of colour, as well as the agency's first female president. As Tom Seymour reports, the news comes after the Photography Collective, considered the world's standard-bearing agency, met with sustained criticism from voices throughout the photography world for the lack of diversity among its membership in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. On the 10th of July, one, a global sale of the 20th century, comes to screens worldwide and to four major cities, Hong Kong, Paris, London and New York. 
From the explosive energy of Zawul Key to the sumptuous beauty of Joan Mitchell, the selection of art exemplifies the scope and ultimate global vision of this groundbreaking sale. Browse one and the related 20th century sales online, explore Christie's enhanced virtual galleries where works can be viewed in high resolution and watch the sales live or virtually beginning 8pm BST on the 10th of July. Find out more on christies.com slash one. Welcome back. Now, on the 2nd of July, it was announced to absolutely no one's surprise that the Kremlin and its supporters won a controversial vote to change the Russian constitution and reset the President Vladimir Putin's term limits, allowing him to be in power potentially until 2036. The referendum was held amid a series of crackdowns on freedom of expression in the arts. Among these disturbing events, Kirill Serebrenikov, one of Russia's most famous theatre directors, was accused in trumped-up charges of embezzlement of state funds and found guilty, but given a suspended sentence. Peter Verzilov, a member of the artist collectives Voina and Pussy Riot, was sentenced to 15 years in prison for petty hooliganism, and Yulia Zvetkova, a 27-year-old artist and activist, faces up to six years behind bars for distributing pornography, despite the fact that the images are innocuous feminist body-positive drawings. Sofia Kishkovsky is the art newspaper's Russian correspondent, and I spoke to her about these cases and what they tell us about the future of the arts as Putin's grasp on Russia tightens. Sophia, we're speaking on the final day of voting in this referendum. Can you tell us what Russians have been voting about and what are the implications? Well, they are voting on a package of amendments to the the Russian constitution that could enshrine um, Putin's rule until 2036 because um, it in effect, resets his terms to zero. So he will then be able to serve another two six-year terms um, after his current term is up in 2026. So that is essentially lifetime rule. And um, among other um, key amendments um, that are being widely discussed and promoted in the advertising for the constitutional referendum are, for example, God is now in in the constitution as a core value for Russia and um, marriage will be enshrined in the constitution as being only between a man and a woman. The Russian language and ethnicity are are given um, a special status in in the constitution. So a number of reforms that will essentially make this um, Putin's constitution. There was a constitution under Yeltsin, there was a constitution under Stalin, this is going to be Putin's constitution. Right. And, and, you know, the perception here is that this is just uh, an exercise in sort of fake democracy. Is that right? I mean, is there any potential that there could be a shock in this election? That's a correct perception. Um, uh, That is the discussions that... um, people who are unhappy about this here are having as well. So there has been actually a lot of debate, including in the arts community, about what to do. Is it better to ignore this constitutional vote completely or to vote no? Um, And so that has divided a lot of people. And then there's a sense that this is the final act in the fake democracy, that um, that there's going to be this vote and then that's it. They're not even going to pretend anymore. Right. And is it right that the Constitution has effectively been published 
in this form and it's just as soon basically as soon as the results announced the, the the constitution stands so basically they're, they're so convinced of the result that, that, that it exists as a as an as, as a sort of publication already yes i i was checking that actually right before we spoke and i, I believe that is the case that in fact um perhaps you even saw a video that lucy rice masha lochina posted a couple of days ago in protest against this, in which um, she, she burned what she said was a copy of the already published constitution. So let's talk about how this is affecting the arts community. And in fact, these, the, a spate of very high profile recent events, which are very concerning about artists and the art community's freedom of speech. Let's begin by talking, you mentioned Pussy Riot there. So let's begin by talking about Peter Vazilov, um, who is connected to Pussy Riot. What's the situation there? Because that, that's, this is one of a whole spate of, of events of this, of this kind. Um, yes, so a week ago, his apartment or the apartment he was staying in Moscow was um, raided by police in the early morning, actually a little over a week ago, 10 days ago, and um, he was taken away. I think he had a chance to, to, to tweet about it, and then there was no contact with him. And then he was um, found to be in a p- police station, so he was detained um, and then released that evening, but then immediately detained again because what appears to have been a provocateur accosted him outside the police station, and so Virzilov was then detained again for... Um, for cursing at a police officer and then the following day arrested for 15 days. So one of the, the explanations, um, we, we haven't, I don't think, heard from him since he's in a, in a detention center, but was, was that he was planning something on um, or around the Victory Day Parade, which because of COVID was postponed from May 9th until um, last Wednesday, the 24th, and that he may have been planning to recreate um, that iconic image from Tenement Square in 1989 of a student in front of a tank. So on the one hand, and that and it also coincided with um, that same day, an art gallery being raided by the police. They had had an exhibition last year um, of the archives of Pussy Riot, of the art group Vaina, of which Virzilov was also part. Um, and the curator was Marat Gelman. Um, a well-known art world impresario in Moscow who in recent years has been living in Montenegro because he was having to start, starting to have problems in, in Russia. But he felt last year um, uh, that it was time to start doing something in Russia again. So this art gallery was raided and appears to have been in, simply in connection with um, the fact that the investigators saw that they had had something about these two art groups on show there. So there's a lot of randomness to what happens here. I was going to say, you know, how much of the um, activity, how much of the sort of official response to this is dictated by sort of the past reputation? Because obviously Pussy Riot is the most famous example of this in the West, but there are a number of different actors, if you like, in in, in the art community in Russia who have, who, who are serially basically surveilled by the authorities, right? Yes. Um, well, so one of the things, of course, with, with Pussy Riot and Virzilov is you pretty much expect them to do something when these things happen. So it's not a surprise and it's not even a surprise that they're detained. It's not so much of a, of a, of a shock at this point and they expect it, right? On the other hand, um, they also have created a very important website, a news website called um, Media Zona. 
which um, uh, Nida Tolakornikova and Masha Lyokhina, they used really prize money to fund that. And it's become one of the most important news websites in Russia for prisoners' rights, human rights, and they conduct investigations. And so, of course, they are targeted for that as well. Now, let's talk, let's talk about, I, I guess, one of the most famous theatre directors in Russia, Kirill Serebrinikov. This, it seems to me, is because he's such a high-profile figure, this, it seems to me, to, to be one of the most disturbing. Because, and, and also, just the details of the case suggest, you know, there's, there's, there's this extraordinary factor that uh, he's accused of not presenting a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, even though press reviews exist and all that kind of thing. So it's this level of kind of fake news that's built up around this case of this theatre director is really quite sophisticated. Um, yes, so the, the verdict um, was handed down last last for Friday on, on the 26th, as you know, and it's really been a shocking case. Um, going back to, to 2017, when the pressure on him was building, and he was taken away from a film set in St. Petersburg. The, the formal charges against him, uh, which he was found guilty, were for um, embezzlement of, of state funds and not producing that production that <laughs> was produced. Um, I was recently going through through my my papers and just by chance I've, I found um, a press release, an actual paper press release of the founding of his seventh studio, which was at the center of the case, including that very production. Um, and people had videos, there were reviews. So, so it's, it's, it's utterly and completely bizarre and disturbing. At the same time, the embezzlement issue, and this is the case, this is where arts is very much caught in the crossfire in Russia. Um, arts are very dependent here on state funds. So um, there are, um, there's the Ministry of Culture, the, 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 the city of Moscow, um, and presidential grants. Um, and the way the system, the legal system, the accounting system is set up in Russia, it's essentially impossible for anyone to follow the letter of the law. And if by chance, for some reason, they want to go after someone, there is always the possibility of finding a violation. So basically, they create the loopholes through which they can jump in order to uh, arrest these people or in some way stop them doing the activities that might in some way be critical of the state or not even that, just just um, the, their very existence is, is threatening to the state because they are sort of powerful figures. Um, that's always a hard question to answer here because, well, no one's gotten to the bottom of the Serebrenikov case about who exactly went after him. And he also has said that in his final statements. Um, so, and said, someday we'll, we'll find out. Everything is so tied together here. You can find how about 10 years ago when Serebrenikov was becoming well-known, um, you know, he, he staged, apparently it's said a play by Vladislav Surkov, who was this some um, Kremlin advisor who is very much into modern culture. Um, he, he, he staged a play by a writer named Zahar Prilepin, who has since become a field commander in the war in Eastern Ukraine. He's a very talented, famous writer in Russia, but he is of that nationalist um, group in Russia. And so all these people who maybe at some point were, were together, then something, something goes awry. The situation changes and, and people become enemies and you're never quite sure who's after whom. Now, one of the 
aspects of the constitution which is obviously most important is this idea of enshrining marriage as being between a man and a woman and that relates directly to a one of the most disturbing cases which is the case of Yulia Svetkova. Can you tell us more about her? Yes, um, it's important to know that Yulia Tsvetkova is from um, the Russian Far East, from a city called Komsomorsk Namure, which was a closed military industrial city. In other words, foreigners were not allowed to visit there. So certainly she would stand out there much more, much more than in Moscow. Um, and maybe one way of looking at it is that places like that, they are 50 years behind the West in the mentality. So in the West, someone at that time would have gotten into trouble, I think, for these things. And she was, um, so she's, I think, I believe, 27 years old. She had a, a theater group, a youth theater group. And that was actually when her problems began. I first wrote about her in 2019 for the, for, for the art newspaper. She had a youth festival, an arts festival, and the authorities cracked down on it. And, um, and it was because they were already suspecting her of LGBT activism. Although at the time, it was simply a youth festival. And then it turned into a pornography case because she had started um, a social media group called the Vagina Monologues and um, she posted drawings that she did, um, body positive feminist drawings, including drawings of, of vaginas. And she, um, as a result, was charged, among other things, with pornography for which um, she faces up to six years in prison. And um, she was under house arrest until March. Um, and um, her trial is expected to begin in July. So, of course, um, this will be after the Constitution will be passed. And she, she is going to have a very hard time because a city like that is very closed with very strict um, law enforcement authorities. There was, um, there's an artist in Russia named Aidan Salakhova who does a lot of, um, she's a very well-known artist. She, she does a lot of about gender issues in her art. And she, she expressed these concerns um, the other day. On the one hand, she said, in Moscow, what Yulia did, it wouldn't even be noticed. But in a city like that, it is. On the other hand, if she is prosecuted for this, it means almost any artist in Russia can could go to jail for pornography. Right. I mean, let's look. Let's look at the images because you know, from a Western point of view, these are they're, they're sort of vaguely cartoonish drawings, which, as you say, sort of body positive images. When you think about what Western artists have produced in terms of feminist art, a lot of that was much more strident and much more dramatic than these rather innocuous images. Well, yes. I mean, if you look at them, they they simply seem innocent. <laughs> Precisely. She had a, a Facebook post the other day in which she writes about how hard it is for her now to walk by the police um, station in the center of Komsomorsk on Amur, where she was held and questioned because she knows now um, what goes on in there. I don't believe she said that she was tortured. It was you know, mental, mental torture, but she knows about police brutality and, and torture in Russia, and she can never look at these places in the same way again. So lots of questions remain, in other words. Yes. <laughs> Russia is kind of, someone told me this morning that Russia is kind of like a theatre of the absurd with five different directors. Well, that's a, a suitable note to end the conversation. Thank you, Sophia, for telling us all about it. Thank you very much.
You can read Sophia's reports on all these cases at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the National Gallery in London will reopen on the 8th of July after nearly four months of closure. And so for the latest in our Lonely Works series, we're looking at a painting that's been in empty galleries for all that time, but will soon be seen again by visitors as the National finally reopens its doors. The painter George Shaw was the gallery's associate artist, effectively an artist in residence, from 2014 and held a hugely acclaimed show, My Back to Nature, at the National in 2016. He's chosen to talk about Thomas Jones's A Wall in Naples from 1782, one of the smallest paintings in the museum. You can see an image of the painting and a related work by George Shaw if you go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. George, I wonder if you could just begin by telling us what it's like to be the artist in residence at the National Gallery. I mean, how much licence did you have to sort of wander the halls, as it were? Not as much licence as I would like to have had and um, not as much licence as um, I was kind of led to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I certainly wasn't given this magical Lucian Freud key, which apparently he had. Right, yeah. Were you able to go and pretty much look at, you know, in those moments, on those mornings, could you sort of wander and see whichever works would just occupying your your mind at that time yeah I mean the the weeks which I would sort of be in because I, I didn't live in London so when I went to my uh, sort of job you know in the week sort of thing from from here in Devon I would um I'd turn up there quite early in the morning and then be there and I'd designate what I was going to look at for that couple of hours before they opened the door and the great unwashed kind of flooded through um and then I'd sometimes I would draw or doodle just just not because I believed it kind of did anything technically for me. I don't really think it did that. It was sort of something to record my time looking in front of the picture, really. But it's interesting that because like so, let's move on to Thomas Jones's work because this is this is a work which, if one could say that there's a work which in some ways resembles a George Shaw painting uh, in one's head, then maybe this is one of them. Uh, it would, I mean, and, and it's interesting to me that when, when we, you told me that you were choosing this, you said that this was, some, this was a work that you were going, you felt that you would probably respond to, but actually you didn't, in that exhibition, there is no evidence that you responded to it, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think I'm, because, probably because of what, it was just exactly hit the nail on the head. Because it was the painting I probably most admired, and it was a painting, I imagine there was a number of uh, of my contemporaries who would have thought, yeah, he's going to choose that painting. That looks like one of his anyway. Um, so I thought, went right, I'm not <laughs> going to touch it. <laughs> I'm going to stay clear of it. I don't think I ever looked at it at all since uh, I went since I went there. Um, I just kind of avoided the rooms where it was in. Um, as a result of it, it became like a great big uh, uh, stumbling block for me, really. Um, and there, I was already I was working on a painting which which I took took on that image before I turned up at the National Gallery, which has subsequently stayed unfinished. I actually brought the painting halfway done halfway done to the National Gallery, and it stayed there unfinished. And then I brought it home again, um, and it still sits in the corner of the studio now. Um, totally unfinished. How amazing! So let's let's talk about about the Thomas Jones. Then you, you say it was your favourite painting before before you went. So so had you seen it in reproduction first, or had you discovered it in in the national? Because it, it's quite an easy picture to miss because it's so tiny, right? Yeah, I mean anybody who kind of writes about the the Thomas Jones picture 
is always remarks on its size. And they always, every little essay that I've read about it always remarks on its size is almost exactly the same size as its own postcard. Yes. <laughs> so you could, you could almost like swap the two <laughs> quite, quite happily, which I've thought about doing. So it's, it's easily missed. And for that reason, it probably, that's probably one of the reasons why um, I, I'm drawn to it because I've, I tend to find things which are easily missed quite attractive. There's the phrase, the overlooked which which I seem to hear quite often now. And now there seems to be nothing more looked at than the overlooked. <laughs> like, actually, what you look at again is the things which are looked at farther too much and actually then become overlooked. But, um, yeah, it's a painting. I had seen it as in reproduction um, before I'd seen it in the flesh, like most like most things in my life, and, to, and, and, and fell in love with it just because it was... Just not because of its size, just because of its sheer blankness. Really, I was most of my reproductions I saw in it were actually bigger than the when I finally saw the picture. Um, they were much bigger than the. I mean, the reproduction I'm looking at now is probably twice the size of the picture. Um, and I've seen it in a, where people have given a lecture on it, where they project a slide of it, and it's huge, <laughs> like bigger than a wall itself. So to actually see the painting and realise it's it was so small. Um, confirmed it to me as a as one of the um, the masterpieces of the National Gallery. Really, I mean, there was a, there were a number of other paintings that Jones made at the same time. There was a sequence of them made of these um, walls and houses, and all of them combined. But that, I don't think I've actually, I don't think I've seen them actually. There was a Thomas Jones exhibition at the National Gallery, I think, about twenty years ago. But I never saw that exhibition for what re- whatever reason. Um, so I've never seen the other paintings in the flesh. This is the only one of that series that I've seen. That's right. And I mean, by all accounts, I mean, I, he, he's not an enormously well-known artist. He's an artist who, you know, mo- I would imagine that most people listening to this would have seen possibly this painting and no others. I mean, certainly that's my experience. Um, the National has two others, but I can't for the life of me picture having seen them. Maybe they're in that same room. But it, but it, But one of the things that strikes me about it is that... You know, this is a, a one of those examples of an artist whose work during his lifetime, the pictures that he made for exhibition, are now largely forgotten. But actually, this tiny little sketch, oil sketch on paper, is the one that he's remembered for and celebrated for. And it just occurs to me, you know, as an artist, that is, it, it does that is that sort of a curious thing to think about as an artist about how your own legacy might be skewed by taste over time. Oh, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it gets skewed by... It didn't even get skewed by taste over time. It gets skewed by just five seconds passing in the studio. You know, something you think is great, you go for a cup of tea and you come back and it's just awful, and that's you. Um, uh, I mean, you can be forgotten about, you know, not in a lifetime. I mean, it's an old cliche. You can be forgotten about in a lunchtime. I mean, time is the worst and the best critic, but it is the only critic. It's the only critic worth paying attention to. But, of course, it's something that you can't care about because if you did, um, you would destroy all the things which are rubbish. And I imagine Thomas Jones probably thought that this was probably something that he could have just propped up in the corner of the studio and forgotten about. And then it becomes his um, his memorial stone. But it's also um, valuing the purpose for which the pa- the picture was made. And a lot of the exhibition paintings that sort of like some, an artist like Thomas Jones would have made. They were made for exhibition. They were made to appeal to the tastes of the people of the time. And, of course, the, the tastes of the people of the time 
I haven't got that much care for. And those people still are, are still around now and I don't have much care for them still. And the, this painting gets made for his own amusement, for his own use as well, in the sense that he's probably a study or a quick sketch to kind of get himself going. Or it's just something that he saw out of that window. Um, I believe it was the, the view out of his window of the, the room he was staying in. Um, and it just it just hit it just hit an urgency in him, which of course is missing in some of those exhibition paintings. You see it in Constable sketches as well. There's an urgency, which is um, which has attracted the artist to the to the subject matter in itself. And I think that that communicates through the time. And I think that's the thing that we most of all latch onto is the sense of the human in it, rather than the sense of the uh, the showman. In it. I mean, in contrast to so many of those great constable sketches that you mention, that the, the thing about this painting that is so remarkable is its sheer blankness—the blankness that you referred to earlier on, isn't it? Because because it's not, you know, it's not an uh, a picture which has any real incident in it, is it? No, it, I have seen it written about as a painting with no incident. Nothing happens, you know, almost like the um, nobody came and nobody went on the bare platform, you know, that that kind of thing but it is it's i find it full of um it's like the, the titian's action it's quite saucy there's some washing on the line it's you know it's the um there's a lot happening what is that big streak of white you know is it a piece of sheet is it a is it a used bit of toilet roll i find it it's deeply mysterious and and quite um funny um quite quite sexy and quite what's going on behind that door um, someone's obviously opens it, pokes some washing out and closes it again. I find it quite um, full of activity, really, because because you can't see it because you're making it up. I find those kind of things, those su- suggestions. And not only is that not only is um, those activities suggested, but the whole of life is suggested by the barest touches of the brush to make it look like a, you know, a wall that's dilapidated and the plaster's peeling off or there's watermarks where rain has poured out of some kind of spout or or something like that and the and the suggestion of of sky which just becomes that little kind of rectangle of blue um which some commentators think about as being almost like an abstract painting but of course it isn't it's it's the sky yeah yeah i mean and i agree with you that there's that sense in which and this is very much in something which is very much in common with your paintings, isn't it? That your paintings, which are unpeopled, there are there is there is very little human presence in your work, and yet there is an infinite human presence by the residues and the and the and the suggestions of presence. I mean, I've I have actually tried putting people in my pictures years ago, and of course they were just it, it was a way of destroying the image because everything became focused on this person or their shoes or whatever they were doing. For, for me, the, the most interesting aspects of human life or human stories are the things that the human beings leave behind, not what they are actually doing in front of you at the time. They're quite boring, I think, most people. Quite dull, you hear them chatting away like me, going blah, blah, blah. Things they do are quite irritating and they look irritating. But as soon as they leave the room, I'm quite fascinated by the by their half-drunk beer or their, um, you know, the the stains that they leave on the table, or those kind of things. Um, we all carry around us the potential for a little a little graveyard, and we leave them behind us. These little memorial stones everywhere we go, and I find myself 
certainly when I was younger, but even more so as I'm getting older, fascinated by reading those memorial stones as we as I as I kind of walk through um, my middle age, really. And for me, that that Jones painting is um, these little sketches. They define a moment, a tiny little moment, because you know it probably didn't take him that long to paint it. Although it probably took him longer than it looks like it took him to paint it. But it is a tiny moment. I can almost see the room in which it's made in. I can feel him, the urgency of him making it. I can hear the sounds of the, the that little bit of the, of the town. Um, maybe birds or the, or or somebody sort of moving around behind that that shuttered doorway or window. Maybe a little tiny glint of music being played somewhere. Nothing more enchanting than music being played in another room. And that, and and that's what's so fascinating, I think, about this work is that on the one hand, it, the, the the that sort of hidden incident is there, but then also, the more you look at it, the the you know, it seems that Jones is slightly delighting in the kind of uh, the incident on the blank wall, as it were. So 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 it seems that he is. Um, fascinated by the details, the edges of the plaster, for instance, the gaps in the brick. He seems to, it's almost like, it's. Well, on the one hand, it's kind of an exercise in describing something which not many painters describe, but then also he seems to kind of enjoy it. There seems to be a pleasure in the way that he's making these marks. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more, you know, if you get it right, there's nothing more pleasurable than painting these, you know, these physical features, really, like stones and walls. I mean, I can remember the joy of, life drawing when the model had a particular pose and you would kind of you know a back of you or getting foreshortening right um i mean where i live now we go for a walk and there's always the stone standing stone circle 15 minute walk from here there's some tours and the, the, the shapes of granite i just think oh this is fantastic i want to sit down and just draw this just for the sheer uh, joy of describing the real world in on a two-dimensional surface, which is something, in some ways, has been um, makes me feel a bit guilty. I think I've been had that sort of knocked out of me by years of art school that it had to mean something other than just sheer pleasure. That that you know, what was the political reason for making this drawing? But I enjoyed it. You know, and it would you would be drummed out or made to feel utterly and completely stupid for for enjoying something you were making i wonder if that's still the case now i think now you didn't you say you didn't finish the work that was a sort of direct response to the thomas jones but walls have featured largely in your work in tile hill haven't they i mean and i'm thinking particularly of the recent picture which was um in a show in brussels not that long ago which is called the painted wall and it's a sort of pun on the fact that it it is you actually painting a wall but it also features a, a sort of painted goal football goal on on the wall so can you tell us about that painting and, and i wonder did 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 thomas jones's picture come into your mind as you were making that yeah i mean I've, well this i've painted loads of walls um which is a sort of great you know, it's a nice joke uh, for the painter you know the wall <laughs> painter uh, which, you know, quite a lot of artists do make a career out of painting walls. For a start off, when you're kind of working with a that fairly suburban subject matter of mine, the walls are quite attractive because they are, they're drawn on or daubed on by, by kids and adolescents and stuff. And I was quite fascinated by those marks that they made. So it was inevitable that I would paint the wall. And it seemed to be that I would paint it front on rather than at an angle 
because it felt like you were it enhanced the joke really that it was a painted wall or a painted surface so i was sometimes getting unsure you know, if i paint a like cock and balls that a kid has drawn on a wall i'm painting the wall and the cock and balls so uh, and then you kind of don't know what you're doing and i still think it's quite funny that i'm spend a long time replicating the gesture the 10 second gesture of this little Pratt, who's drawn this cock and balls, and it's taking it's what I do seriously from morning till night to trying to get this right. So I find that quite funny. Um, it's quite painful and quite uh, irritating for me sometimes, but I'm aware that it's a joke on my own life as a painter, really, to paint a wall. Um, and sometimes that's cock and balls, sometimes it's swear words or graffiti. Um, for the painting you're particularly talking about, it was a goalpost, and I, I think that's. I think goalposts painted on walls are are just the 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 greatest bits of folk art. They've been do- documented v- very well by um by the photographer and sculptor Neville Gaby in a wonderful book called Posts, which is um which is a great one of my favourite books. And um, but he documents um, various sort of styles of painted walls and goalposts, and of course you only have to have your eyes open to see this. The, the funny part about it, that, that painting, the, the painted wall, which is a paint, painting I did of a goalpost on a wall, is, is, it's, is the pun on the painted wall. Is it the wall? Have I painted a painted wall or have I painted a painting of a painted wall? Which, because it was exhibited in Brussels with a slight joke on Magritte, Senos Patton, wall. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of... It never really came out as a little joke for myself. So, is it a wall or not? So, uh, and it was because it was it was painted on canvas and not on a wall. So, I find those sort of things quite funny. So, um, it would the irony would be to paint some canvas on a wall, <laughs> so a painted canvas, which then starts to become like the old stories of Greek painters who would be the the, the idea of them the great painter is the painter that could fool nature. So, you would paint grapes and then the the birds would come and pick the grapes off the painting and then and then the ultimate one was when the artist fools the other artist by asking him to take the veil off the painting to see his, how naturalistic his painting is and then, of course, it's a painted veil he goes to take off the painting. So the ultimate thing is fooling the artist. I find that those little kind of jokes on the side, they're just things that help me get through the boredom and tedium of my day, really. Um <laughs> And I've done another. I've, ju- I've actually just finished doing another painted wall. Funny enough, so um, which another goalpost I found myself quite drawn to. Well, George, thanks so much for talking us through this amazing painting. Well, thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure to speak to someone for once. <laughs> You can find out more about a wall in Naples at nationalgallery.org.uk. A group of George Shaw's paintings feature in Among the Trees, the exhibition at the Hayward Gallery in London, which opens again from the 1st of August. If you scroll through the archive episodes of this podcast, you can hear an interview I did with George from February 2019, in which we discussed his work in depth. And Mark Hallett's comprehensive book about George's work is published by Yale University Press. 
And that's it for this week. Do sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julian Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David's also the editor. Thanks to Sven, to Sophia and George and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.